welcome to the Hope City Church podcast. We're so excited for you to listen along and hear this week's message. We pray it inspires and motivates and draws you closer to Jesus. Let's take a listen. Hey, it's an honor and a privilege to be here uh, in Abbotsford. As I said yesterday, it is snowy at home. It is cold at home. Uh, Now, the temperature is kind of going up, and I think it's because I came here, and the Lord's like, it's not fair for you to go home uh, to something that's cold. Last Sunday was minus 16, uh, but tomorrow, uh, you know, and this weekend should be like plus 7. So we're just, it's it's turning around in Jesus' name. Uh, I have... An incredible family who wishes that they were here with us tonight. I'm my wife, Desiree. And then I got two boys, Everett and Kingston. Everett is seven, and Kingston is four, turning five, and they are amazing. Kingston is literally my mini-me uh, in exactly every way. So, I mean, it goes without saying. He's adorable. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, they are just incredible, and so I'm excited to see them tomorrow. Today they're at Costco, and they sent me videos. They were so ravenous. They couldn't say hi, Dad, uh, because they were eating Costco hot dogs. And, you know, sometimes when you're four years old, eating Costco hot dogs is the greatest single moment that's ever happened to you, and your dad uh, in another city seems inconsequential. So hopefully tomorrow uh, he'll realize that he should love his father more when I get him in trouble for... Not answering. Anyways, let's go into the Bible to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. It's been an exciting season for us, for our family as our church, as we kind of were in the midst of some transitions. We, we lead a church called Engage Church in Spruce Grove and Stony Plain, which you don't know where that is, but it's about 15 minutes west of Edmonton. And then just this summer, everything changed for us. We're out of the blue, something that we didn't track down, something we didn't ask for came out of the blue, and we've taken on leadership of another church called West Edmonton Christian Assembly, and we've pulled them all together. we got one church in four locations-ish, because one's relaunching in 2020, but it's something amazing. And uh, the, the crazy thing is that uh, when you follow Jesus one step at a time, you end up in the most unlikely of places. That when you follow him, when you surrender your life to him, when you give your heart to him, you have an idea, a plan, a trajectory for your life. And then Jesus has something else in mind. He's got his plans, his purposes, and he thinks that your ideas are nice and they're cute. It's adorable that you've come up with some plans for the directions of your life. But the amazing thing is that he called us to follow him. And then when we follow him, we step into our destiny. You could say that when you step out of your plan, you step into his plan for your life. So we're in Matthew chapter 28. This is a graduation of sorts. You wouldn't necessarily realize it because there's no caps, there's no gowns, there's no throwing stuff in the air and, and singing old songs. There's none of those kind of things. It's, it's just this moment Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore... Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is is a crazy graduation moment because these are some of the last words that Jesus is sharing with his disciples. He's like, guys, I'm leaving, so I'm giving this to you. Did you notice it says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, the truth is, if I'm Jesus and I'm given all authority in heaven and on earth, I ain't sharing it with nobody. I'm the only control freak in the room. If you've been given all the authority, all the power in heaven, are you entrusting it to somebody else? No. 
Jesus says to the guys, listen, I've been given all of this power, all this authority. Therefore, because of that, I'm going to give it to you so you can go and make disciples. Now, this is not the first time that this has happened. This happened all throughout their training, this, this three-year journey that they're on with Jesus. He would send them out in groups and two-by-twos, and he would utter similar phrases where he said, I've been given all authority on heaven and on earth, therefore go and cast out demons and heal the sick. So they would go out, and they would spend their time with Jesus, and then he would send them out to go do the things that he showed them how to do. Uh, this word disciple, I want to kind of focus in on this word disciple because I think we get confused at times when we think about this word because we don't use this word in everyday life, right? It's not a normal word for us. We're not super familiar with this word. We're only familiar if we go to church. And when, when we go to church and we use these words, we put on a whole bunch of layers of meanings and understandings that just kind of like keep growing. And it becomes nebulous and weird because what we've made disciples become is people who attend a midweek Bible study that watch a video for 17 minutes share a Bible verse, have conversations which are actually about our problems, not the Bible verse, pray for one another, enjoy some snacks, and go home. And we say, hey, we're disciples. Maybe we're disciples if we show up to a midweek service on a Thursday night or a Friday night. It shows that we're really committed. That doesn't mean you're a disciple. It just means you like coming to church on a Thursday or Friday night. See, on top of the word disciple, we've decided that the word disciple means depth of knowledge. That I, If I have a depth of knowledge about Jesus then I'm a disciple. But that's not true either. You know, there's that awkward moment where they're like, Jesus, hey, hey. And he's like, listen, the time will come where people will come and say, I know you. And Jesus says, I do not know you. You did stuff for me, but you didn't do things with me. I pray a little prayer over my sons every night. and say, Lord, I pray that they would know you and be known by you. To begin to unwrap the layer of the onion of the word disciple, I think the simplest phrase that we could put around it is somebody that, who is known, who knows and is known by God. Who knows and who is known by God. See, I like to substitute in the word apprentice when we see disciple. See, the earliest idea, when we, when we, when we go all the way back, now here's, here's, what's, here's a little fun fact for you. The idea of discipleship as displayed in Scripture was not actually a Jesus idea. It was a system that was happening. It actually started uh, by the Greeks. And I know that we hate to hear that to give it credit to somebody else, but what that helps us understand is that Jesus came at just the right time to utilize and maximize the system that was at work in the earth for his benefit. That means that he is not limited to time nor space. So if he's to show up here in the midst of our life, that he knows what it's like to put us on a discipleship journey or an apprenticeship journey, knowing and using our level of understanding. So if the way that we connect best to him is through services and experiences and small groups and he's going to use those systems and infrastructure so Jesus is a rabbi and he's using this rabbinical system except he breaks the system because the guys that he picked should not have been selected 
In the Jewish education system, if you went to, I'll just use our grades for ease of operation. If you got to grade six and you were in like the top, you know, 20% of the class, then you would select it and you would move on to junior high. And then if you were in the top 10 or 20% of junior high, you would move on to high school. And if you were in the top 10 or 20% of high school, then you would be selected by a master or a rabbi or a master teacher. And he would say, come, come, you're the best and you're the brightest and you should walk with me because I can do something with you. You see, when it's the world system, what we can deliver and how we perform is the thing that determines the outcomes of our life. But when we follow Jesus, it's just about following him. It's not about our performance. Can you dance, monkey? No, it's never been about those things. It's about, I'm just going to follow Jesus. See, Jesus picked these guys that, that, that were a little rough around the edges, the people that nobody really thought that much about. He, he picked fishermen, and they were good. They were entrepreneurial. They had the entrepreneurial spirit. They ran their family businesses. He picked tax collectors, and he, ta- he picked all these guys. I mean, Jesus picked Judas. If you're a church person, you know what that means. If you're not, he's the one that betrayed him. But he picked him. He handpicked him. Isn't it amazing that Jesus picks us in spite of ourselves and our tendencies? That he selects us, that he chooses us, that he's like, hey, I can, I can do something with that guy. See, when he looked at Judas, he looked at him and he didn't see him as, <laughs> this is going to sound exciting. He looked at him and I don't think he looked at him and he said, that guy's a betrayer. I think when he looked at him, he said, I can do something with that guy. I can do something with that guy. If he walks with me, I can do something with that guy. See, when Jesus looks at us, we look at ourselves through the the worst parts of ourselves, and he looks at us, and he goes, listen, I can work with that. I can do something here. Would you trust me? So that word apprentice becomes so important for us. There's a Jewish phrase in understanding that you would walk in the dust of the rabbi. The implication being that you would follow your rabbi so closely that as he was walking on the dirt roads, that your robe, because he all wore robes, would be covered in his dust. You were following that close. I mean, I don't know how hard you have to stomp to make dust on roads. But you were following that close. That, that, that the dirt that was coming up from his shoes would be hitting you and impacting you, the, the implication of following a rabbi. You didn't just like, so in, in Christian language, we talk about I'm transformed like Jesus. It's like from glory to glory, I look more and more like Jesus. It begins to make sense as we begin to unravel the mystery of the rabbinical system because as you follow a rabbi, you actually are to become like the rabbi, not like, and not only like the rabbi, but to become the rabbi, a proxy for the rabbi. So if the rabbi walked a certain way, you'd learn to walk a certain way. If the rabbi talked a certain way, if he said a funny word in a funny way that you didn't, you would say it like him. You'd wear your hair like him. You wear crazy shirts like him. You wear the shoes like him. You walk like him. I'm going to get really gross for a second. There's, there's actually Jewish writings that say that they would follow them into the bathroom. They'd learn to go to the bathroom like the rabbi because every part of their life was to reflect. I know it's awkward. That's why I just kept going. Uh, Because every part of their life was to reflect the life of the... They were becoming the rabbi. 
Doesn't that change things for us when we think, oh, I'm not going to just become like Jesus, like a pale image or comparison, but that we could actually be transformed to be as close to Jesus as the original, that he's drawing us in, that you are selling yourself short if you believe that your identity is just to be something kind of like Jesus. No, you can be just like Jesus. That was the original intent. That was the plan. You are his apprentice. He is the master. Remember, you're the masterpiece. But now transition that thought to understand that he is the master. I am the student. I'm becoming more and more and more and more like him. So he says, go and make disciples. But what he's calling us to is to go and make more apprentices. I'm going to learn from the master craftsman. I'm going to become an apprentice. See, this is established over and over again. Jesus would call the disciples. He'd say, come and follow me. The apostle Paul, I don't think it's in your slides. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, one would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In other translations, he would say, follow me as I follow Christ. But that, that idea that imitate me as I imitate Christ, sometimes you ever read that and you're like, does that mean that I'm a cheap knockoff? Have you ever, like, gotten something that's, like, real fake? My cousin uh, went to New York City, and he went and got me a watch on Canal Street. And he gave it to me at Christmas. And back in the day at Christmas, we used to clap. I convinced all my cousins and my family that you clap after every gift was open. And my dad got so mad every Christmas because every gift was like... Every single gift, one at a time, every... Big, small, terrible. We just round of applause. Like, it was just absolutely amazing. But I got this watch, and I was like, man, this watch is absolutely unbelievable. I was like, man, it's so thoughtful that you went and got me a Tolex. Because it, like, it looks like it, but then you pick it up, and it doesn't have the same weight or the heft, and the letters aren't right, and the numbers aren't the same, but it's okay. It's fine. It's fine. No, you're not a cheap knockoff. You're not an imitation. We've already established yesterday your value and your worth when we decided and we understood that God so loved the world that he's gave his one and only son for you. Your price, your value has already been established. You're not a cheap knockoff. You're one-of-a-kind restoration who's becoming more and more like Christ as an apprentice being transformed day by day into his image. See, Paul had this idea, but so too did David in Psalm 34, 8 when he said, taste and see that he is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Follow me. Come and follow. Come and follow me and then taste and see that he is good. The challenge for us is how much have you tasted? What have you tasted? How can you call someone to taste something which you have no knowledge of? Now, I don't know if you do this here. Because you have snow for about 17 minutes. But back home we get big old snow falls. And then what happens when you go to school is they come and they clear out the teacher's parking lot. Because apparently teachers need the parking lot cleared. But what results is something epic and incredible. A giant hill of snow. And when you see that giant hill of snow. 
Calgary people, you know what I'm talking about. You see the giant hill of snow. Only one thing is about to happen. You're about to climb that hill of snow. And you're about to conquer that hill of snow. And you're going to play a game called King of the Hill. Is anyone familiar with King of the Hill? Only snowbound people are familiar with King of the Hill. What happened? Let me just explain to you what happens in King of the Hill. It is, it's the most incredible experience and probably the truest picture of humanity to ever be established where you start clambering up the hill with the intent of owning said hill. You will be the champion of the hill. And the way that this is accomplished is by grabbing other innocent children and tossing them off of this hill. And you throw them into chunks of ice and you feel good about it. You feel fine about it. As you climb up the hill, you're using them as trash. Action. One child, second child, third child, it doesn't matter. You're savage. It's okay. You're about to conquer the playground. It's fine. You get to the top of the hill and you're like, I'm the king of the hill! You know, like a professional wrestler. And as you look upon your new kingdom, you will discover injuries all across this place. But it's okay. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're like, and you're going to get healed, and you're going to get healed. Let the bodies hit the floor. Let the, anyways, they're all on the ground because you've injured them on your way up. And what you realize is, wow, I'm amazing. And it's true because you survived. You're not bleeding at the bottom. But then the realization hits you as you stand on top of your hill with your arms raised high in victory that the only way you can stay on the hill is if you can fight off the rest of the savage children coming up the hill to conquer you. That the only way you stay the king of the hill is you can push everybody off and defend your hill or the recess buzzer rings. And I'm sad to say it, but most of us live our Christian life as if we're playing the king of the hill. Don't you know that I'm doing something for God, that I'm accomplishing something for him? Don't you know that I have gifts, talents, and abilities? Don't you know that I'm about to conquer for the kingdom? Don't you know? And we, we unfortunately, without us even realizing, sometimes we use our gifts, our talents, and abilities as an excuse to cause other people pain because we're climbing to the top for Jesus. Incorrect. You're climbing for the top for you. But we become so convinced that we're doing it for him that we take great pleasure in it. We're like, we'll pray for you later, ma'am. And then standing alone at the top of our kingdom, we discover how alone we are. Because in order for us to fulfill the destiny that we feel like God placed on our heart, we have caused what seems like irreparable damage to everybody around us. Don't you know I have to use my gifts and talents and abilities? No. Not if it means what you just did. Because the kingdom of God is not a hierarchy. It's a family. The kingdom of God is not a hierarchy. It's a family. There's this awkward moment in Matthew 12. Do you ever read the Bible and kind of get frustrated and angry at the words that Jesus says? If you haven't, then you haven't read enough. <laughs> There's an awkward moment where he's like, eat my body, drink my blood. And you're like, excuse me? <laughs> Vampire Christians? But in Matthew 12, we get offended because Jesus is at a speaking engagement much like this in a house that's, that's jam-packed to the rafters. And his mothers and his mother and his brothers show up. And they're like, hey, so we're on the list. You should find our name by Mary, Mother of God. 
in the brothers. And somebody rushes over to Jesus in the midst of like his crowning moment of his message. And they're like, hey, so your mother and your brothers showed up. And Jesus asked, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And we get instantly offended because that's what we do in 2019. Like, I can't believe that Jesus was talked about his mother in that way. I don't know if I can follow a God like that. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he pointed to his disciples and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Please don't let our 21st century outrage get in our way of an actually beautiful moment where Jesus isn't talking down to his mother, but he's speaking out in a voice of unity that says, if you're in the family, then I'm with you. You're my mom. You're my brother. You're my sister. We're all in this together. It's not a divisive moment. It's a unifying moment when he says we're all in this together we're better together if you would just walk with me and follow me this is a family this is not a moment for us to be divided this is a house that stands together and then what Jesus does in that moment in Matthew 28 is he does something highly irresponsible he throws the keys of his kingdom to his disciples and he's like have fun go and make disciples in this graduation service, we've taken the words of Jesus and again, we've put some of our own understanding on it. And we've decided that going and make disciples means go on a short-term missions trip to some country where it seems exciting to serve God. But if we look at the original language, it's actually a present participle, which is super exciting. Grammar's fun. And what that means is that maybe one of the better ways that we could understand the phrase go and make disciples is as you go, make disciples. It changes the implication to mean instead of a two-week trip that you go to once or twice a year or once or twice in a lifetime, it's every time you roll out of bed and you walk outside. Wow, I don't know what just happened there. Every time you roll out of bed and walk outside your house, you're just about to go and make a disciple because you look like Jesus. You talk like Jesus. You smell like Jesus. The aroma of the presence of the Lord is upon you. When you walk into a room, the atmosphere changes, not because of you and your good vibes, but because of the Spirit of God at work inside of you coming out. And then people are drawn to you, and you're like, why do you keep coming to me? Because in the Word, it says that the Father will draw all men to himself, but it also says that he lives inside of you. The Father and the Son live inside of you so you should not be surprised when people are drawn into your presence because the father is drawing them to him to himself and you just have to be the vessel that he's using in this moment we roll it back we call it back to last night in the book of isaiah where we discover that he is the potter and we are the clay and we are the vessel which he would choose to use if we're open and if we're willing to be an apprentice of Jesus. And we echo the words of the Apostle Paul and we turn to those who are near us and we say, listen, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Jesus. How do we do it? We do it one step at a time. I guess you could say it this way. The original intent of Matthew 28 could be stated in such a way that reads, I, meaning me and you, am an apprentice who has an apprentice. That's the plan. I am an apprentice 
who has an apprentice. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. See, when you follow Jesus, you find a family. And when you follow Jesus, you become an apprentice. I'm so captivated by the thought that we are all in the family of God. In Psalm 68, there's a moment when it says, and it's describing the very nature of God. In verses 5 and 6, it says that he is the father to the fatherless and defender of widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy. We often skip to whose dwelling is holy, but we look at his nature and he is the father to the fatherless, the defender of the widows, the defender of those who cannot defend himself. That is who he is, the father to, to those who do not have one, who are disconnected, who are outside of relationship, who do not have a provider because at its very essence, sometimes being a father is being a provider. So for those who cannot provide, he will provide. That is Who he is, and then in verse 6 it continues, the thought moves on, it says God places the lonely in families and he sets the prisoner free and gives them joy. And I'm just not convinced that the comment separates the ideas. Wow. Sometimes, sometimes we live in captivity And we're so captive because we feel so alone and the loneliness feels like a never-ending hole that we cannot climb out of. We feel like we are trapped in a cage, but when we encounter Jesus, we encounter not only Jesus, but a heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit. And then we encounter a family, and then we encounter all these people that are following Jesus. And we understand that we've got mothers and brothers and sisters and people who are doing life with us. And then we realize that we can be set free from the cage of our loneliness that sometimes we impose on ourselves because we are convinced that we are not worth it. And Jesus says, of course you're worth it. That's why I gave my life for you at just the right time. As we talked about yesterday, while you were utterly helpless at just the right time, Jesus gave his life for you. And it goes on to say, while we were still enemies. You didn't even like him when he chose you. Sometimes community... And finding relationship feels uh, a long ways off. It feels like a fantasy world, and sometimes it feels intangible. It feels like we say these things like community, but we really just mean a crowd that's gathered in a place. And sometimes it feels hard for us to connect, and we, and we don't understand why, why we can't just connect. And the, the honest truth is it's because we're always waiting for somebody to connect us. Community is not nebulous or abstract. It's not a fantasy world. We do what Jesus did. In in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So how then do we make disciples and how then do we find authentic community and relationship? We do what Jesus did. We pull them into our world. 
When Jesus said, I've got all authority in heaven and on earth, he actually throws us the keys and pulls us into his world. On earth as it is in heaven, he gives us a taste of the goodness of heaven and eternity, and he brings his world to us. And now he says in the same way, turn and bring others into our world. We've made this complicated. I have to go to a course. I have to sign up. I have to watch a master class online to get 17 credits to become a disciple of Jesus. No, we just follow Jesus, and all we have to do is, like, it doesn't matter what stage of the Christian journey that you're in do you know do you know something yes check okay great then you know enough to make a disciple because all you have to do is stay one step ahead because as long as you follow Jesus he'll keep leading you forward and you'll just start a Mexican train behind you I saw the confusion on your face and I clarified it immediately I used to hang out with some of my friends and cousins, and we used to climb up on this uh, shed in the neighborhood. But I was bigger than everybody else because my neighborhood was full of young children, and I was, like, the oldest. And we would climb up on the shed and throw rocks at things because that's what you do when you're, like, 11 years old and a young gentleman following Jesus one step at a time. And so I would go and I would climb up on the shed and I would throw rocks at things by myself because all my other little friends couldn't climb up on top. The cousin could not come. No one could come up with me. I would just climb up and I would sit up there and I'd throw things by myself. And I thought it was awesome for a while. And then you're like, uh, you guys should come up here. And they're like, we can't. Our legs are small. And so I would just sit up there and start yelling instructions like, no, left foot over the over two inches. Go that way. Put your left foot over that way. And then, they, no, put your hand right there. And I would shout instructions and I would just yell at them for a while. And then everyone would get frustrated. I would jump down and we would all go home. <laughs> and then I realized it's a lot more fun when you have other people on top of the roof of the shed throwing things. And I had a revelation moment. <laughs> Power of God revealed. In my ingenuity, I realized my verbal commands were not working. And so I did something that changed the game for all in the neighborhood. I reached my hand down, and I pulled them up, one at a time, until everyone sat on the roof, and it started to bow, and we all got really nervous. <laughs> Why is it that we insist as Christians and as believers that the best way that we could have people come up to where we are is by standing up? And shouting back instructions about the morality or behavior, about the best way that they could live. Why is it that we always come across as the angry uh, person saying, hey, if you just did this one, listen, they don't know what they don't know. Until they've been given an opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good. You shouting commands and instructions, expecting them to somehow come up to wherever you are is only going to create a gap until we reach a hand down and we say, come on, taste and see that he is good. And we give him a 
pull and say, come on up here with me. Follow me as I follow Jesus. And they say, what does that all mean? It just means that he's amazing and I can't quite articulate it always and I can't quite explain it. But when I walk with him, things are different and things change. We don't get angry. We pull people up. We pull people up and out. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? He pulled us up and he pulled us out. We'll roll it back to the Old Testament because I think we like that around here. In first chapter, first Samuel chapter 22, there's this moment. Jesus is a, uh, Jesus. David is a fugitive. He's on the run. He's considered a criminal. There's a false report that he's trying to murder Saul, but that's not true. Saul's trying to murder him. Saul was the current king, so he's, he's running away. He's done all kinds of crazy things, like literally pretending to be crazy. <laughs> and now he's hung, hunkering down in a spot, and people started to gather around him, these, these people. In First Samuel 22, verse 2, it says, And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 people. These high-quality individuals, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was, in, who was bitter in soul. I don't know if you've ever been around anyone who's bitter in soul, but it is not a delight. But those were the people that started to gather around David, and I'm sure David started to like question himself, like, why do I get these people? This guy's in debt. This guy's in distress. This guy's bitter in soul. Sounds like country music. <laughs> but if you fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 23, you find this chapter where these same people are described, and they are described as David's mighty men. They were an elite military force, the best of the best. The world recognized them, wanted them, headhunted them, chased them down. So what is it that caused this change from people who were in distress, who were in debt, and who were bitter in soul to become some of the world's best that were close to David? Well, I think we've discovered the mystery when we flip over the book of Acts, and we find that David is described as a man after God's own heart. So those who are bitter, those who are in distress, those who were in debt, we could say that when they drew close to the heart of God, they were transformed. When they drew close to the heart of God, they were transformed. They drew close to David, and David was a man after God's own heart. Isn't that our dream and our desire to be an apprentice of Jesus who looks like Jesus, talks like Jesus, whose heart beats like Jesus, our heart breaks like Jesus? Do you know before every major miracle in the New Testament when Jesus was present, it starts with the phrase that Jesus was moved with compassion? I think that the miraculous is not unlocked by you having more faith, but by you having more heart, having more love. 
where his heart was broken. I think in Luke chapter 7, he shows up in an intersection to a funeral procession. Do you think that was a mistake that Jesus showed up there? This whole crew shows up while there's a funeral going the other way and the disciples are like, come on, let's go. And Jesus, instead of being annoyed by the crowds that were walking in front of him, his heart was broken. He was moved with compassion. He sees a widow. Oh, because he's a father to the fatherless. The defender of the widow. That's his nature. That's who he is. He's moved with compassion. He reaches out and touches the stretcher. And the young boy comes alive. Sounds awesome when we read it, terrifying when it happens. Because if you've ever been to a funeral and you go to an open casket, do you ever have the thought, I wonder what would happen if they just sat up? That's what happened here. (laughs) Miracles are awesome until it's dead people coming back to life. And you don't, like, they're already embalmed. How's this happening? Lazarus was in the tomb for three days, wrapped up, nasty, comes on out like gross. Tomb smells of dead bodies. You're like, it's a miracle. You're like, this is gross. But isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't run away from the grossness or the problems or the issues or the smells or the sense. He just brings dead people back to life in some, in some ways. He's asking us to do the same thing. When you walk into the room, what do you see? I can tell you what I see. I see dead people. Because I see people who have not yet experienced Jesus. I am moved with compassion and my heart is broken. Now, I'd like to say that that's how it feels every time. I'd be lying if I did. I just hope that more and more and more, the day after day, my heart would feel that way. Sometimes I just walk into Starbucks and I just want a coffee. I wonder what might happen if my heart beat more like his. That when I walk in, I'm not so worried about my interruption. Because the other thing that you'll notice about the miracles of Jesus is that a good percentage of them were interruptions. God made my heart be filled with compassion in the same way that yours is filled with compassion. And may I be less concerned with my schedule, agenda, and plan and be more concerned with what you want to do as I go about my everyday life as an apprentice of Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you are drawn closer to Jesus and that his spirit, his love, and his life are filling you right now. If you'd like more info about who we are and what we're doing at Hope City, head over to hopecitychurch.ca to find out more. And if you liked what you heard, head over to iTunes and rate the podcast to spread the word so others can hear too. And oh, one more thing before we go. We just want to remind you that you were made for hope.